Welcome to the CG Pro Podcast. This is episode 41 with Norman Wang. Um, if you enjoy today, you can follow us at becomecgpro.com uh, or join our Facebook group. So yeah, I'd love to introduce Norman, um, our guest today. Uh, Norman is the founder and CEO of Glassbox Technologies, who make all sorts of wonderful technology to help support the virtual production industry. And uh, we're going to get into a conversation about a lot of that. But um, yeah, Norman, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Well, so I know a little bit about you, but I would love to to hear um, a little bit about your your journey to this point. Um, I know that you've spent time in academia and some other companies. Um, how, how did you, were there some early inspirations that kind of led you in the direction of, of film and technology? How did, how did it kind of start for you? So I came from um, a video games background, actually. So my right. academic career has been around um, uh, interactive technologies and kind of researching how the effects of technology um, can influence human perception. So that's kind of where I came from. And that was sort of the gateway to virtual production, which is through virtual reality. And my speciality at the time really is around like performance capture. So we worked with really early uh, integrations into game engine. So we start, we help bringing all kinds of different tools and, um, and equipment into the Unreal Engine. So at the time it was Unreal 3. So we built a lot of the, the technology integration um, at the time. And then afterwards, what really sort of got us into virtual production was actually an opportunity we had with Google. So we helped Epic and Google uh, integrate the Project Tango tablet, if you might, if you mm. remember those things. I do, so, yeah. Yeah, so that integration was um, done in collaboration with Google, Epic, and us at the time. So. Oh, cool. One of the chief application for that was actually um, basically augment, uh, augmented reality and virtual cameras. So being able to use the augmented reality device to kind of navigate virtual environments and, th and things like that. So at the time, we didn't even really, like the word virtual production didn't even really cross our radar. And it was really um, after we started working with some of the people that are more directly involved in the, in the production aspect. Uh, pre-visualization, visualization, and to sort of onset visualization, that we became uh, a part of this uh, virtual production ecosystem. So this would have been back in about 2015. So going going back even even further than that, you mentioned studying, and what what did, what did you study before you got into that line of work? Before you got into video games and um, development in real time. So. Um, what, what I did in university was basically computer science and interactive multimedia. So I knew at that time, um, you know, I had this ambition of kind of um, telling a story that could only be told in an interactive medium. Like to, to this day, it's still something, um, somewhat of a passion of mine um, to kind of play very interesting video games that tell stories in very interesting ways. Uh, and I was very excited when things like um, like these sort of interactive shows uh, started to, to come around where like, I, I think it's sort of like the collision between linear narrative and nonlinear narrative. So yeah, that's kind of being what's driving uh, a lot of things that I do and being uh, coming from like a technical background, it really helps 
understand, I think, that sort of bridge the artistic intent uh, as well as sort of the underlying technical foundations, like the things that makes it possible. Right. No, I resonate with that a lot. I, I kind of got into visual effects through VJing and my ambition as a VJ, instead of spending a lot of time with abstract visuals in front of DJs, was trying to tell stories in that medium as well. It's tricky, but you know, it's some good experiments with it. Um, <clears throat> so what um, what led you to sort of know that that's what you wanted to, to study even? What, were there some earlier experiences that pointed you in that direction? So... Um... I originally, uh, when I was picking my, what, what I'm going to major in um, for college, um, I actually, initially, I wanted to go into astrophysics because that's been sort of an, an interest of mine for, for a very long time. Um, but then I played a video game um, called The Knights of the Old Republic. Mm. And I'm not even really a Star Wars fan. I know this is like blasphemy for a lot of people, but... We can bleep um, that out, okay. <laughs> But um, at the time, I, I played that game, and, I, I, and what captivated me was that it was a story that really could only ever be told in an interactive medium because you as a player had choice and influence over the direction of the story, about um, over the events of the story. So that was what kind of really fascinated me about the medium, and that's also what prompted me to kind of want to study video games. Um, but yeah, then after uh, after my academic times, I realized, well, me and a group of friends, we realized game development isn't is a very unusual kind of business. It's very difficult to kind of make a business case for making a game. It's difficult to quantify um, and objectively like what makes something fun. And mm -hmm. what we ended up doing a lot was kind of we started doing odd jobs, um, building technologies using game engines or building tools and whatever using game engines that are not games. And then one thing led to another, we realized this kind of side job that we were doing to like fund our primary job was much more, um, was actually kind of turning into its own thing. Um, and that's what got us involved with NASA. That's what got us involved with, um, with Project Tango. And that's what got us involved with like technology integration into the Unreal Engine. And that's the bridge to virtual production for us. Right. <clears throat> it makes sense. Yeah. So it sounds like it was for following a lot of your own curiosities and, uh, and seeing where they went. But you, you had a strong sense of what you, were, what you enjoyed. I think it's kind of like because when, when people work on the cutting edge, I'm, I'm sure this is the same for everybody that are sort of involved in creating things that sort of didn't exist before um, is that you don't really know where you're going, but you have a rough idea of where you want to end up. Um, so yeah. there, there's a goal in the distance, but the path to get there is not clear. So, but it, it's also that you can't just go explore in a random direction without a sense of what it is you're trying to achieve. So I think you do have to balance those things. Right. Yeah. Like trying to, set sail and look for the West Indies and accidentally finding America. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. You, you need to kind of have an idea where you're going, even though you don't necessarily know how to get there. Right. Um, yeah. You can't just like set sail and just like, I'm going to sail in a random direction and you're just going to end up lost at sea. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And um, following, did you, so early on, I guess, did you, did you, 
feel like you absolutely knew you wanted to get into into interactive technologies and games? Did that feel like a pretty confident decision? I think um, sort of being, you know, uh, as a kid, kind of getting out of high school, getting into college and kind of choosing what it is that you want to do. I think at the time, it really was sort of like follow, follow your passion sort of thing. Um, because I, I think at the time, I was fairly confident that whichever direction I choose, I'm going to end up somewhere that I want to be. Mm. And for me, it was always like, as long as you're okay with the consequences, just and dive head on in and give it 100% of your, your time and effort. Um, they've always been kind of how I approach everything. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to hear about because I think you know a lot of different people listen to this and people who are already well into their careers or some people who aren't. And I, I remember thinking back to my early days, it's very confusing. You're being asked by grown-ups, like, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? It feels like so much pressure to to do that. But you know, instead of instead of that, thinking about the, the following following your intuition and following your passion and being curious and yeah, that's a sounds like good advice. Yeah, I, I think this applies to a lot of different things. I, I think being able to um, kind of keep sight of what you want to do and being while being open to explore and make mistakes uh, and be okay with making mistakes. Um, but most importantly, learning from the mistakes so that you don't repeat them in the future. Right. So. Yep. Um, I think that's been like a really valuable guiding principle for myself. Right. Yeah, it's it's confusing sometimes. I think you you can feel like you made the right decision, and then you get into something you're like uh, this is really hard. I'm not I'm not sure is this the right thing, but some something pulls you through. Something um, keeps keeps pulling you through those those challenges. What 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 uh, for you? gives you the indication that you're you're following something in one of those really difficult moments where so everything's going wrong, but you still feel like you know you, you need to keep going? Um, that's a really good question. I, I think it's a combination of two things. Like coming from academia, it's really interesting because when, when we, the perspective of academia is that almost every problem has been kind of some aspect of it has been tackled in the past. So in academia, we, we really spend a lot more time looking up and trying, we, we have a saying, you know, a good idea gets rediscovered every 10 years and gets reinvented every 20 years. And that's because like, usually you have something that happens in the past. Maybe the, maybe the technology wasn't quite there. Maybe like the um, sort of the, the environment and the surrounding um, circumstances wasn't quite right for that idea to be fully explored. Maybe it wasn't quite accepted or something like that. But then the more people kind of try to tackle the same problem, they will rediscover the same solution, even if it was an incomplete one. And everybody contributes to make it a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. So it's like an incremental thing. Mm. Um, like we, we, we talk about like an overnight success, like 10 years in the making, right? Like a, a revolutionary groundbreaking um, like piece of academic work is always built on foundations of countless minds that preceded them. So the first part is like, I think the first thing that helps me get across these really difficult times is sort of the humility and knowing that 
we are probably not the first person to encounter these things. Maybe mm. we're the first person trying to do this very specific combination of things. But if we take it apart, we I'm sure we can find solutions elsewhere, maybe in an unrelated field of people who have encountered this problem in the past and have a solution for it um, and that we can learn from it and we can borrow from it. So that's like, so <clears throat> number one, the humility to say, what we're doing is not a hundred is, is not totally new and there are things that we can learn from and people we can learn from. And the second, I think it's almost not quite the blind confidence in that you can do everything, right? But it's sort of that, oh, that sort of confidence built on past experience to say, mm -hmm. we can, we can overcome this. This is not an insurmountable problem. Um, and I think having that sort of that humility and knowing um, that you're not the first person to encounter this issue. And then sort of that, that confidence that nothing is sort of unsolvable. Um, I think that combination is what gets us through some of the, um, the, the most difficult times. Right. No, that's really interesting. Yeah. Cause they're kind of inevitable really in any endeavor, you know, you're going to come across things that are, that you know, that are hard. And then there's things that you don't know about yet that are really hard and, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting to hear your perspective on that. Um, now being, being around, um, do you put like examples of things that you've accomplished around you just to like, remind you that, you know, yeah, I, I solved that one. It means I could solve this one as well. Um, <clears throat> I think to an extent, um, and I think that the Tango project for me was really sort of a personal turning point for myself and the team involved because it was really, really difficult, right? Like we were dealing with integration with the technology that is experimental, even for the people that are making it. We had to pull together many, many pieces of disparate um, technologies. Like it needed to go through four different like languages to even make it happen. Right. Android is on, on Java, Unreal is in C++, and then there is like a, a like kind of internal processing thing that we needed to do to communicate between all the different services on the device. And we weren't like a mobile-centric developer prior to that point. So it, was, it wasn't so much a learning curve. It's like there's just a cliff, and that we had to scale that cliff. And... Um, so that was kind of, I think, where it all crystallized. Like we had to go and find literature and past and sort of things that people have done in other areas and really quickly become proficient in that space. And, you know, once it's done, it's sort of like looking back, it's like I, I really don't think anything that we've encountered since was really anywhere near as difficult uh, as that project. So... Right. It was kind of like, like you said, we were able to like do that. So why couldn't we do this? So you kind of think about that sometimes when you have challenges, think like, wow, that was really tough. This isn't as tough, so we can do it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we, cool. we, we, climbed, we climbed that hill. So this hill is clearly not as tall as that one. So we should be able to climb it as well. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. How how about um, the people that you have around you? How how because um, to, to make really complex things and solve complex problems, you need you need a good team. Um, how do how do you uh, how do you approach having uh, and finding and 
keeping a good team around you to to accomplish these things i think people really is much more is an is a much more complicated problem than technical problems I think, right. in, in a lot of ways um because i think humans we don't have like a single thing um that we want to do there's it's complex inter, uh, interplay of motivations and and so on uh, di and different people want different things so for us it really is a matter of i think providing as engaging an experience um, working so that people actually want to work um, and sort of making sure that they're properly supported in being able to do the things that they're doing is very important for us. And COVID um, brought around some changes to organization as well. Like right now, we're almost a fully remote team um, with people in seven different countries. Um, and yeah, and one of the one of the things that we realized is that we have now turned into what we call kind of like a V-shaped organization. So we have more seniors than we have mid-level people and we have more mid-level people than we have junior people. So right. what that really got, um, what that brought for us is um, kind of the, these sort of very elite driven development cycle. So rather than kind of, we, we, so something that we noticed in the past when we were a little bit more like a traditional organization where we had like an, an, a, like an even mix of senior, mid-level and juniors, we realized what happens a lot of the time is that the senior people turn kind of into managers yep. and um, or sort of like problem solvers for people that are uh, not as experienced and a problem that they could potentially solve inside of 15 minutes. They, they end up spending like two hours trying to like sort it out for somebody else. And like, that's not necessarily a bad thing because that allows people who are less experienced to become experienced in the process. But, but what we found is that it seems to be more, like it works for us a little bit better to kind of cultivate like individual specializations um, while not cutting off that ability for people to ask for help. But um, we've also found that being remote also actually promotes uh, a bit more independence in people mm. in, because like, in, in the past, like we, we, we've seen people who like they, they run to um, something that they couldn't quite solve. And their first instinct is to, oh, this person uh, is available. I'm going to ping them and ask for help. Um, and when we're all in like a physical office together, someone will just like walk over to a desk and like tap, tap someone on the shoulder. But what we found is that when we're a bit more remote, when we're all working from home, it fosters more independent problem solving. Mm. Because like maybe if you just persevere for another five minutes, you will find a solution to this. Um, maybe it's the answer a lot of time is just one Google away. And um, by being more independent, you actually end up spending more time um, developing your problem-solving skill rather than relying on other members of the team. Um, not to say that if you really hit a brick wall, that we, we also make sure that we have as much of that collaborative uh, atmosphere as possible, that we make it a policy that everyone's always available to answer any questions for anybody. Mm. But um, yeah, being more independent also means you learn better, I think. Um, you develop better professionally, but it also uh, frees up availability for people to spend more time focusing on what they're doing. Yeah. 
So yeah, like the pandemic has brought about some very interesting change and to, to kind of the way we work and our work culture, but it's very, I think it's, it has been strictly positive in that sense. That's great. It's really interesting. Uh, <clears throat> I know there's somewhat of a debate going on at the moment as to whether it has been positive and it's probably different for different companies and different people, but I, I felt uh, similarly as well. Um, I love that book, uh, and if you read it, Deep Work by Cal Newport. It's um, it's about basically about exactly that, being able to have enough time and focus to be able to to innovate, to create meaningful something meaningful, to create something new, and not just do administrative type smaller tasks. You need you need time to be able to focus on that, and those big open plan offices are not really conducive to to that because of the amount of disruption essentially. I think, um, yeah, it definitely depends on the, I think it depends on the industry, depends on the people, depending on what it is that they do. But for us, um, I think what that, that worked out um, really well. And we're experimenting with um, an approach that is really spearheaded by our German team, which is mm -hmm. what we call a manager as, a, uh, as assistants. Because, you know, like processes and bug reports and all those things are still very important to do. But a lot of the time, um, we, we found that people don't really like doing them. It's, it's very rare, right? Like, I don't think anyone really gets off on, on writing a report. It's like, this is going to be the best bug report I have ever written. But Nobody likes some, CPS reports, no. <laughs> yeah, but some people like that, right? But um, so what we're experimenting at the moment is to have basically like a dedicated um, kind of engineering manager whose job is to basically write those reports, um, write the, like, so if we were to kind of benchmark a particular bill against another bill, we need to kind of have data for how is this better? How is this worse? Blah, blah, blah. And these kind of things, um, we were now sort of trying to have people whose job is to write those reports rather than the engineers having to write it themselves. So these people will kind of fill in the document, will document the process and give it to the engineer to review. So they will be like, yeah, we did this. Yeah, that's correct. Yep, yeah, all that checks out. Cool. And that takes like five minutes of their time. Whereas like if they, if you ask the engineer to write this report, it takes them hours and mm. they make mistakes because this is not necessarily what they're good at. Um, right. I know it's a part of their job for sure. And people have to, professional kind of aptitude to say, even though I don't like doing this, it's part of my job to do this. But we also thought, well, what if we have somebody whose job is to do that? And we can take that load off of people's shoulders. And, and so that they can focus their, frankly, more valuable time doing more valuable stuff. Right. Um, this is an interesting conversation that like when I was a SIGGRAPH, um, so we, we, we kind of also met up a little bit at SIGGRAPH, I think. Um, with a, with a, um, uh, we were sort of like the, the CTO of a very large um, kind of visual effects studio, and we we kind of talked about sort of seniority being like not just um, a pyramid or a single ladder of seniority, but really more of like a, a grid. So we have like two dimensions. So one dimension is sort of the capability. And the capability is really just measured by like how much of the stuff that they, that they could do that nobody else can. So it's capability on one axis and then the manageability on the other axis. Mm. So 
on that on, on this axis, we can kind of plot people who work differently. Um, so someone that is very difficult to manage, but has very strong technical competency. This is a prima donna, right? This, yeah. this is sort of your your tech superstar that, and the, the way you diva. manage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, these people that you kind of just give them the problem, and then they and and they will solve it in kind of ingenious ways, but they don't like to be told what to do. And then you also have people who are very, who is not very good, but very easy to manage. And these are the these are the juniors that you can kind of farm off like simple tasks, like um, kind of um, um, you know doing like fixing low priority bugs or um, doing like um, the, well, whatever issue that you might assign a junior person to do. So a lot of people can do it, but because these people are um, are very self-driven. Um, they take direction very well. Um, they ask for feedbacks and et cetera, et cetera. So these people are really great, kind of your your sort of golden boy juniors um, on sort of the lower right side. And someone who is very manageable and also very capable is like your unicorn. Right. <laughs> like you, you, you hear about, you know what a unicorn looks like. It's just never seen one in person. Yeah. And I, I, think, I think everybody sort of falls somewhere on that spectrum. Um, and you really try to avoid the bottom left-hand corner where people are neither good nor manageable, right? You, you, you sort of, you want people who are, you, you're, and even people who are very good, but very difficult to manage, that may even be something you, you need to be very careful about. Mm. Um, we, we actually had a, like, when they say, it's sort of an engineering wisdom in saying that um, it's harder to fix a problem than to create one. So if you're at your most clever when you cause a problem, how are you going to fix it? Um, right. So it, it's, it really is, I, I think, um, kind of over the last few years as we grew and shrunk and kind of evolved as, as a company, um, we kind of more, I think we now focus a little bit more on kind of how we work with people and how we manage people internally. Right. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, trying to... Trying to... Um, help people focus on what they're good at, how, trying to um, have a good balance in the team as well. Yeah. But this sounds of what you're saying, have, not having everybody be a certain type because there is actually not that one's better at having the balance between them creates a kind of harmonious team. I was, I was uh, <clears throat> one of the last jobs that I had on, on a very small team doing a very difficult thing. Um, it was only 15 people in total and we were doing something incredibly complex and there was almost no juniors a very similar kind of thing so yeah i think is it's a really interesting paradigm and an interesting time to think about it and yeah interesting going going through this time that we've all gone through being kind of forced into being remote everyone's i think i feel like engineers a lot of the time they kind of just want to get on with what they're doing and and they've been freed up to do that a bit more by being able to be at home unless they're stuck in the house and all the kids are in there as well yeah, I, I think um, COVID has brought about a change for us that I think is welcome. Um, and it really helped us. Like we, we lost people, but mm. we increased in productivity. And then that's something that we really, that we found was, was really, really interesting, was that we just did more stuff than we did when we had a bigger team and right. had, a, had an office where everybody was together. And yeah. it's just it's just so bizarre um, to to realize that we could we could lose headcount 
but gain productivity in the process. Um, you attribute yeah. that more to, to focus? I think focus and specialization. Yeah. Um, because I, I think over time, the sort of people develop their own specialization to say this type of problems will be done, will, will be like this guy is the person that you go to for this type of problems. Um, so if you really want to talk about like low level code optimization, you go talk to Yanis. But if you want something solved quickly uh, in a really brute force way to just see if an idea is going to work, you go talk to Kyle. That that sort of thing, right? Like we have people that have different styles of working, and then it's really about making sure that the right task gets assigned to the right people. Uh, not to say that they couldn't do each other's tasks, but certain type of things, I think certain people have affinity to certain type of tasks. So being able to delegate correctly as, as well, I think, um, is also a really important part, like knowing the people that we work with better. And as um, for yourself, are you are you still hands on? Or do you find yourself more um, doing that kind of thing and, and um, dividing tasks and um, managing, or are you still hands on as an engineer as well? Um, like I, I realize, I shouldn't be hands on as an engineer. Like from time <laughs> to time, I help people find uh, spot fires. Yeah, but um, like. I, I think if you're something like as, as a, if you're a manager of a team and somehow like you're still contributing in an engineering sense, then I think something is kind of wrong. Right. Um, not, not to say that there are certain problems. I, like, I realize if, even if I want a certain things done, it is better that I spend that time writing up better specifications than necessarily like writing code. Yeah. Um, because we hire engineers specifically because they write code and that's kind of what they're good at and for me i feel like it's really m more important for me to be able to grasp high level concepts be able to be unsaid and see the problem and being able to distill it down into okay what kind of problems can we solve um like what, what actually is the problem right where is the inefficiencies in the process and the workflow and how can we potentially solve this technically? Because sometimes um, workflow issues, like we, we do a lot of consultation as well. And we realize a lot of the time, the solution isn't necessarily technical. Right. A lot of the time, the solution could be um, like you're, you need more people or you need less people. Um, there's too much of a diffusion of responsibility and you need to focus that onto like a single person. Um, Sometimes it's about being able to empower the individuals a little bit more so that the technicians are a little bit more autonomous. Um, a larger team isn't always a better team. Sometimes you want a smaller and leaner team uh, where everybody's a bit more focused or you, sometimes it's an infrastructure problem. Um, you shouldn't, like you, like sometimes it is just investing in more storage, investing in higher bandwidth connectivity. It's, sometimes it, it is as trivial as that. Um, but sometimes the, the problem, the solution to the problem is technical. And we as people, as a team that is kind of really comfortable with breaking the boundaries, um, it's, it's just sort of a, a daily routine for us to say, well, I think this is a limitation with technology and we can extend it in some way 
So take, for example, we can modify the engine, we can extend the engine or the tech stack, we can build something bespoke for this that solves the problem. And that's, I think, well, what we do, right? Like as we are tool builders and we're problem solvers. And uh, my job, I think on the team really is to understand what the problem is and come up with the best solution. And if they are also technical, if the solution to it is technical in nature, then being able to unambiguously communicate it to the team. Um, and also give them, I think the other really important thing is that we need to give them context for why that problem needs solving. Yep. So why do we need to make this faster? Why do we need to reduce the memory footprint? Why do we need to, because people can be given a task and say, well, we need to reduce the memory footprint. And then they will be like, well, by how much? What's the trade-off? Like, is it acceptable if we spend more compute cycles to compress data? So we store data in the memory as a compressed format. Um, and often a lot like problems have different solutions. There's a lot of different valid solutions to a problem. And being able to provide people with the right context gives them the ability to select the correct solution from all of the different candidates. And I think that's really my role to understand the problem, to, to come up with a solution. And then if the solution is technical in nature, communicate the solution and the context and have a open-ended discussion with the team because you're, you can be wrong. They may have a better idea. Yeah. You, you, you may be able to keep your cake and eat it too. Um, right. So, so if you, do, if you don't give them the context, then they will solve the literal problem you give them. And instead of going, Oh, actually, okay. Looking further into this, this is actually the problem and maybe solving that before they come back to you. Yeah. And, and I think that just becomes like, um, it's not purely, yeah, like it's an explore, it's, it's an explorative process and we, we run all of our development very much in this kind of exploratory process where we don't try. Sometimes there is a very clear solution to it, but a lot of the time uh, the solution isn't quite as obvious as it seems, or maybe the most direct path to something isn't necessarily the best path. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. So can you tell, tell us a little bit about um, some of the interesting problems that you're, you're solving right now <laughs> or some of the things you've just solved or what, what are you guys um, working on? Like there's a few things we can't really talk specifically, but sort of very broadly speaking, I think, um, and also for the audience, I hope you find this, um, this useful, is that um, over the last few years, one of the things that I've noticed is um, virtual production has definitely kind of taken on a very particular shape uh, around uh, the LED virtual production. So these big LED volumes, well, LED volumes large and small, and then um, green screens and things like that. But I think sometimes we sort of lose sight of virtual production really is a broader uh, family of technologies. Uh, everything that virtualizes aspects of physical production, whether it's camera, cinematography, active performances, sets, uh, and lighting, and so on, all of this is a component of virtual production. And so in terms of like the most interesting problem that we've solved over the, the last while, I think it's really data management on set. Um, and I know that I was just saying, well, there's a lot more into virtual production than LED walls. 
um, the most interesting problem that we have solved, I think, is the idea of getting data onto and off of the, the walls mm. and being able to preserve um, all of the creative intentions of the modifications that were done to the virtual sets. And most importantly, being able to preserve as much of the data uh, that we can because it's there, right? The, the inside of these virtual production environments, we have precise knowledge over, you know, just about everything we have precise knowledge about, or even if we're not tracking them, we, there's the lights inside of the volume. We have volumes that have uh, various camera and object tracking methods, but we don't really use them to their fullest. Um, yeah. And that, and also a lot of the time, the modifications that were done on set to facilitate a particular uh, creative intention. So the director wanted the sun to come from a different angle. They wanted um, a little bit more warmth in the shot. They wanted it. They want this object gone. They want this enlarged. They want this sort of depth relationship kind of broken up a little bit. They want this door to be a little bit wider, et cetera, et cetera. Like, these being able to preserve these kind of creative intentions and make sure that they survive into post-production is really, I think, the most critical issue that we were trying to solve. And it comes in um, also through a really roundabout way, right? Because um, we, as someone that's kind of quite involved in, in the whole LED space fairly early on, um, the differences between uh, shows that use it really well and was able to get away with minimal amount of post-production versus the ones that had to do a lot of post-production to make everything look correct um, really comes down to sort of, um, well, it's not a single problem. It's a, it's a kind of several related problems. But um, ultimately, we were trying to figure out how do we make people's life in post-production easier? So how can we... Um, save people's time to not have to like figure out what was done on set for a particular shot so that they don't have to do all the guesswork to recreate it in post. A lot of post-production um, people out there thanking you right now. <laughs> Me being one, were like, why didn't they get it? Why didn't they just write it down? Like, <laughs> exactly. But so it's, it's a lot of things that, you know, talking to people in post-production, they're like, oh, I can't believe I have to like rebuild this lighting from scratch like we didn't get this we didn't get that um so we had to do this and that and just a lot of the stories from the trenches we realized really stem from the fact that data that should have been tracked isn't tracked but then once you get the context of why these things weren't tracked it's because well there's a million and one things going on on set all the time mm. and if you have to track, like if you need to add another person whose job is to track a specific thing, that's another person you have to manage, right? That's another chain uh, in the process. And if one of it fails, like it takes everybody down with them, right? Um, or in the best case scenario, it's just a little bit annoying or you just don't get the data. But in the worst yeah. case scenario, you you take every down, everybody down with you. So it's totally understandable that people are very conservative on set. They want to stick to what works. So whenever you try to track a new piece of data, um, it takes time for people to feel comfortable introducing a new piece of equipment or a new position um, or a new 
piece in the pipeline um, when you are sort of under that intense pressure. So what we realize is that, well, you can automate these things. So they just happen in the background without you needing to even worry about it. And so it's kind of like with, I, I feel people are conservative because they're trying to solve things in the old ways that they're being solved. And there are more intelligent approaches to, to all of this that allows you to track more things without really adding to the burden um, just by having better tools, it's, it's really just that, like, why chop wood with an axe when you can take a chainsaw to it? Yeah. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. Um, and I know this, this crystallizes into some, some products that you guys have built. So you want to, uh, talk about I'll them at all or anything that you can talk about? I'll take this opportunity to like shamelessly plug this thing. Please do. Um, so a lot of the, the learnings that we had over the last few years has crystallized into um, this new version of our tool called Beehive. Um, so this is specifically Be, uh, Beehive 2. And by the time this recording is coming out, um, I think 2.1 will just be on the horizon. And we've introduced a lot of stuff that we learned from being a part of um, actual shows. Mm. And we've made it so that it's basically streamlines all of your uh, onset workflows so the most labor intensive components so it basically handles all of your initial sync deployments um so being able to distribute all of the assets to to the to the led cluster um and it also manages all of your tracking as well so this is um, version management. So all the modifications that you're doing to your world, whether you're importing new assets or just creating things from scratch directly on the walls or just making small tweaks um, to the content on the wall, like everything in between, um, we will track every modification that you make automatically. Um, we give you the ability to preserve um, sort of the sync state as it relates to every take of every shot without you ever having to stop and think about like what it is that you just did. And lastly, it's about being able to get that data out from this editing environment. So preserving the full context and making sure that everything survives uh, into post-production. So that's really been the, the emphasis is that we want to make people's life both on set and off uh, as easy as possible. Like a lot of the things that we noticed took the most manual um, work that were most error prone or the most likely to, to kind of um, cause delays uh, on sets. Mm -hmm. We've made a lot of effort to make sure all of that is automated and streamlined. Right. That's great. Well, I think, yes, thinking of revision control and transfer of data from one part of the pipeline to the other. And yeah, there's, there's lots of, those are things I've experienced personally in some of those environments that, uh, that definitely slow things down and, and introduce things that you have to go back and check and bring people back to look at a scene again and say, was it, are we sure we did this? Did we do it this, like, this way? <laughs> yeah, it's like, it, it doesn't look quite right. You know, like I'm, I swear for this particular take, the sun is like over there or yeah. like the grading options was like this and yada, yada, yada. So 
yeah, there there is a lot of that. I think um, that confidence of did we actually do this, or am I looking at the right thing? Mm. Um, that is sort of lost because like people either didn't have time to write them down, or they were lost in the intensity of the moment, or some somebody just makes an honest mistake, or like the tool kind of screws up on you. Um, in the background. So all of these things are possible. Yep. So what we're hoping is that we, we want to kind of present people with a sort of the right tool for the right job. And one of the things that we, we also kind of get asked a lot is, is how does Beehive work with Perforce, right? Because yep. Perforce is sort of the standard in terms of version management. Um, and a big part of that is sort of Perforce is great for a long-term project management, um, like version management for your whole project. So it will preserve like your entire project inside of it. Whereas like Beehive is really more like a scalpel. It is designed to do something very specific, which is to manage all of your changes and remember them in real time and allow you to kind of preserve the full creative context behind every edit. And then if you do need to kind of bring them into like long-term version management, you can either just take the, the data created by Beehive and put it into Perforce, or you can export them out from Beehive and put it into Perforce or Shotgrid or F-Track or whatever it is that you use for production management. So yep. we're, we're trying to say we're not really replacing Perforce. It's just more that this is a this is a tool that is designed uh, specifically for this use case, and you can use it in a variety of different ways in combination with your existing tools and pipeline. Right. So, is it? Uh, so yeah, makes sense. I mean, those those things that you're talking about have a long history and they they're good and, um, but somewhat problematic in those uh, crucibles, you know, in those film sets that can be um, you know, performance-wise, speed-wise. You're asking people to do something, it's got to be pretty quick. If you've got a first AD in the corner looking angry and shouting at you, you want to you get it done fast and then maybe take care of some, some other parts of that once the shoot is wrapped and you can, yeah, that, that makes sense. Are you guys using... Um, your own formats are you leveraging other um scene formats only open source any um anything that you obviously that you can say about that so um we, we can talk a little bit about sort of um at the moment um so when, when we first started on this journey we weren't very proficient with usd mm. so it's it's early on. I, th I think in the life cycle, people haven't really caught on to USD as a as a proper standard. I, I know, like on Lion King, it was like you guys an an early adopter, right? On yeah. Lion King. That yeah, was really um, tough. Yeah, they're like it. It is tough, and I think it really took many years of people kind of wrapping their head around what it is. And I think even to this day, um, I think different people still have very different ideas of how USD should work. And the best way I can really articulated is that it's it's a data description language it really isn't a just a file format it is a way to describe data it is a way to to non-destructively edit data um and so to that question so beehive began without the awareness of usd right 
but because we were trying to make them um, cross platform and cross application. So they began as a collaboration tool. Um, but it did more than um, it was kind of omniverse before omniverse. Yeah. We initially developed it to solve a problem where people are starting to look at um, virtual sets inside of virtual reality. But the directors, they didn't want to modify the world themselves. They want to tell somebody to modify the world for them. Right. Yeah. So they, they wanted to be able to tell, talk to a virtual art department artist to say, all right, um, move that mountain over there or make that taller and make that shorter. They want to be able to point and then something happens like they do with a physical art department, right? Yeah. So at the time, we developed this collaboration framework that allowed for that. But then we realized um, this, is, this would have been in 2016. And then right. there was sort of like a shortage of people with knowledge of Unreal Engine uh, in the industry. So there's a lot of people with Maya experience. So what we then did was we expanded that collaboration framework to also encompass different applications. So at the moment we realized we need to do cross-application, non-destructive edits, we naturally started going down a path that had a convergent evolution with the USD. Okay. So Beehive didn't start using USD, but we are on in the process of making it work much more closely with USD because right. I think fundamentally we're trying to address the same issues. Um, the other technology that we have a lot of interest in is um, Open Asset IO. Okay. Um, and we're kind of looking to see how people want to use it because as an as a unimplemented API, in, in theory, it's just a, a standard. It's a lingual frank, franca for if I want to tell a application to create an object, there is now a standard way to tell the object to do this thing. But I think the, um, oh, sorry, uh, tell the applica application to do this thing, to perform an operation, to move this thing, to import it, to export it. But um, I think the adoption is not quite as universal um, for us to really embrace it. But um, super long-winded answer to a simple question. We're, we are currently uh, really focusing on a USD-based interoperability. But not not being dependent on USD, USD being like essentially kind of an option in, in a way. Yeah, so it's kind of like USD in, USD out. Um, yeah. While um, we, we also have like an our own secret sauce in terms of being able to preserve application-specific data. Because take, for example, like there's no uh, straightforward way to, say, represent a Niagara particle system inside of USD right. or like Houdini graph inside of USD. But, there are, but what we're working on is that there is a way to, to do that. Maybe other applications couldn't understand it. Like Maya wouldn't be able to understand um, a Niagara particle system. Houdini wouldn't be able to understand uh say like a will be a good example uh like a dynamically created uh, blueprint actor or something like that a procedural right. blueprint actor but they are able to at least understand enough of what these things are to make it relevant so that you, you're not just staring at a blank canvas so to speak um, that if you were to work, if, if someone in, in Maya was to work with someone in Unreal, they were, they were able to see the things that they both understand. Right. Um, 
without really needing this whole process of import export it's just like they're all looking at the same thing but just having a slightly different view on the data um, and i suppose that's kind of where things are really really different is that beehive really tackles this collaboration interoperability and, and management uh, as a very data-centric solution uh, and that's why we're able to very quickly um, extend it to work with a uh, LED cluster because each of the LED cluster really is just sort of like a runtime world that are centrally managed uh, and then they need to share the same view and the same data. Right. Wow. This, it sounds very cool. Um, yeah. and, uh, is there, um, are there ways to, to try this out um, currently? You Can you... Is available to buy right now, or how how would somebody um, go about uh, checking it out? Um, so this will be available on our website as a trial. Um, we also have a support team who is very dedicated to kind of helping you um, to onboard you to the technology. And um, as a matter of fact, like sometimes if if you need um, someone to be kind of helping you out in person, like I might be the one that show up depending on which part of the world you're in. Um, but it, it, it is something that we're starting to roll out or we have actually, by the time this airs, we would, some of the, uh, a few stages around the world will already be using this to deliver productions. So some of our, um, our early partners um, will be doing this. Fantastic. Um, and how's um, your other, do you have a suite of tools? So how's uh, Dragonfly? So Dragonfly has been really interesting. Um, for us, it kind of evolved in ways that we sort of kind of anticipated, but also didn't anticipate at the same time. Um, I, I know it's a bit weird. So Dragonfly really was developed um, kind of fundamentally as a way to, so, so for people who are not at all proficient inside of Unreal Engine to be able to, um, to do visual cinematography. And that's how it was originally developed. Like every every piece of the like every functionality that you would want to use, you can just access it directly in the tool. You don't you don't really have to be an, an expert in Unreal to do it. Um, but where that kind of evolved was that it it turned like what we realized is it helped people introduce virtual cinematography into their pipeline very quickly, because initially you first have to overcome the hurdle of like learning Unreal and then learning about virtual cameras inside of Unreal, assuming that you already have a foundation in, in virtual production. But now it's kind of like there, you don't really need to know Unreal, although knowing Unreal helps, but not needing to know about it um, makes it even quicker for teams to, 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 to adopt. And it also allows people who didn't have an Unreal background to also meaningfully contribute to the team very quickly. Um, so that's yeah. one thing. Um, the other is um, sort of how it, it's like a, a convergence of what we've been doing inside of Beehive. So I talked about like real-time version management as a core capability of Beehive. But what we now are kind of moving towards is kind of like combining these two tools in such a way that we now have scenes that are driven by your, um, your, your edits rather than the other way around. So one of the things that we found a lot of people struggle with is 
if you needed if you needed to make modification to a specific shot, and this is shared by both people doing pre-visualization, animation, games, um, and people doing uh, virtual production, is that you may be making tweaks to individual shots to make something look better. Um, making lighting tweaks, material tweaks, color tweaks. You may be adding a light to a particular to a particular shot, but you don't want this modification to kind of bleed over into all the other shots that you have already done. Right. Um, so that was. Um, so we now combine the two tools such that you're able to make per shot modifications that only lives within that shot. It's not going to bleed over into other shots unless you want to. Okay. So th this is a way that it, would, it has kind of evolved in ways that we didn't quite expect, is that we're now really coming in and say, we're changing how people work inside of Unreal Engine, where you have more like an almost like an edit-driven workflow. You're, your primary tool to interact, interact with Unreal is now more through your sequence than through your level. Right. But you're also, I know, developing this to be connectable to anything, should anything else become the flavor of, of virtual production and Unreal's the, the, the king at the moment, for sure. But this is something which will work with multiple platforms. Correct. Um, so we... We're built in like all like all app technology. We've built it to be kind of application agnostic, and so the core functionality lives external to the applications, and that's why we're able to support Maya and Unreal, and also there's a few other integrations that are going to happen over the course of this year. So really, kind of pushing the availability of this tool to kind of a wider audience. That's very cool. Yeah, and so you, once you've learned it, you don't have to relearn it if it appears in another software. You you. you are exposed to the interface, which is common among all the programs. That's very cool. There's some media yeah. some some minor differences, like certain right. applications can do things that other applications couldn't. Um, but yeah, absolutely. It's it, it's a big part of kind of what, what we do. Um, I have to ask about NASA, seeing as you mentioned them um, at the beginning. Uh, so that, that was some part of the, uh, the genesis of, of Glassbox, I think, if I'm not wrong. Um, how did you, how, what did you do with them and how did that kind of play play out? Um, I know we don't have much time, so I'll be brief. Um, yeah, no so that we was can a, go over a, a few minutes if, if we need to, it's okay. Okay. Um, so at the time, we, this, this would have been 2014 or 2015. So we developed um, the integration with the Connect. So this is the very hmm. earlier versions of Unreal 4. Was it Unreal 4? Yeah, Unreal. This would have been the very, very beginning of Unreal 4. And then so we had the Oculus, um, uh, the HD prototype. It's not even the DK2 at the time. And then we combined it with um, Connect-based input. So we created a game that you play basically with your body um, called Earthlight. And it was a tech demo to, to showcase that we not only are we able to integrate these like desperate tech stacks, so virtual reality and natural user interface, we're also able to really push the rendering to its limits because of our experience with the game engine. So at the time, we actually published, you could probably still find this on Reddit. It's on the on our space. We published a few renders that were captured in games, and they were so 
realistic. People initially couldn't tell them apart. Um, and then that's how we got in touch with some of the folks at NASA that was really interested in kind of how we were, how we did it. And so that turned into a longer relationship where um, we collaboratively explored uses of like civilian virtual reality technology for different parts of NASA, um, where are, they are absolute experts in virtual reality, but they're new to this new generation of virtual reality. Mm. Yep. So we, we, we had the hand in kind of helping them overcome some of that initial barrier um, and sort of share with them sort of the, the learnings that we had. And they share with us um, some of the explorative efforts that they, they have put into um, this technology. Um, so some of the things that they did were extraordinary. Like they, they had a, um, in order to have like a wider field of view, they had two oculuses bolted to to their head right so each of the each of the headset was for one eye um this is from like the really early days when the whole thing had like a single display panel so it it was not the production version at all this is like still the development kit days with more like a phone kind of screen yeah yeah so Yeah. yeah so they had two phone screens to each of their eyes and then because they knew how to do like perspective match rendering, they knew, knew, knew how to do all this warping with matched optics and all that kind of stuff. So they were doing stuff that were like unimaginable. Right. But at the same time, they didn't really know a lot about game engines. They didn't mm-hmm. really know how to talk to game engines. For them, that's a whole new thing. And I think we just played a small part in kind of helping them um, sort of get a bit more hands-on with this new tech. Right. Now, very cool. Yeah, I mean, cool, cool company or cool organization to work with. I am and I have the fortune of working with them as well at the moment, doing some something related. Um, but yeah, that's really cool. Um, I also just brief, before we wrap, um, I know you're you got into this whole thing because you're interested in technology and telling stories. And do you do you get the opportunity to to tell stories still? Do you feel like um, that's still something you have itches to scratch i i think everybody in this industry kind of have that itch to scratch um from time to time me too yes definitely but i I think that's sort of a little bit the difference between like doing something as a hobby right like for for me at the moment um sure i have a story i want to tell but i think i'm more focused on making sure other people can tell their story yeah so that that's what i I think we as a company are really sort of the four, the foremost objective is to empower other storytellers um, so that they could tell the story they want to tell. And personally, sure, like in, in the future, there's some, like if the opportunity arises, um, I would love to be involved um, a bit more creatively in certain projects. But at the moment, I'm really kind of content in just kind of helping other people um, tell their stories better. Awesome. Well. Uh, tip of the hat I, I the same you know I run a school so uh, definitely doing that more than telling my own stories too and uh, it's very it's really rewarding getting to watch other people being able to achieve their goals so I resonate with that a lot um is there anything else that you want to share with uh, with our audience um, anything anywhere that they can follow you um, glassbox any other things that you want to mention to people um if you want to go and uh, get in touch with us, email is really easy. Um, and also, I'm 
reasonably active on most of the virtual production Facebook groups. Um, there's quite a few out there now, but um, the, the few main ones, I, I pay attention to them. I basically look at every post that comes up. So if people ever want to kind of get in touch with me directly, um, feel free to kind of give me a holler on those groups. And yeah, I'll do my best to respond to them. Awesome. Any, anything else um, to look out for from Glassbox? Uh, I think, yeah, th this year will be interesting. Um, we'll be doing quite a lot uh, in the first half, and hopefully there will be a major announcement kind of towards the second half. We'll, we'll see. Um, but there's a lot of ex uh, exciting developments on our end that we look forward to sharing with you. Lots of activity in the Beehive that will be announced at some point this year. Across all products, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah makes sense. Yeah, um, cool. Well, it's been a, a real pleasure chatting with you, Norman. Thank you very much for your time. Um, I really, yeah, really enjoyed it. It's been really interesting to hear your perspective, not just on technology, but also creativity and the whole human side of things, which I think is often not talked about and is, is really a huge part to play in all of this because it's all being done by people. That was really interesting as well. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you uh, for having me on. I wasn't kind of expecting to share that aspect, but I think the question kind of took us there and hopefully people find it useful. Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's crucial, really, because, you know, the, the the technology is being driven by people um, and it's only as good, I think, as as the teams and the the support systems around around that that allow for that to be birthed. So I think it's it was interesting reading um, Ed Catmull's book about creativity and of how he transitioned from being more directly responsible for, for some innovation and engineering to then doing the same thing, creating a place where innovation could be born as opposed to just creating it himself. And it's called Deep Work, was it? Oh, that this was a different different book. I think it was called Creativity Inc. was was okay. his book. Um, it's yeah, it was about him really kind of moving on from being a, a direct technologist to to running Pixar basically and you know that that whole uh I adventure. thought that name sounded familiar it's the Capmo okay yeah, yeah. Ed Capmo Yeah it was cool it was a really interesting book that, and, and that goes into that <clears throat> excuse me that idea quite a lot um yeah the other one was deep work that was really about a lot of the, those kinds of books are about one idea. They just spend 250 pages talking about, about it. But the, the, the interesting part with deep work was but because we live in such an age of distraction and celebrating to some extent the, the outcome rather than the process, um, that's really talking about that, about the process, about how to focus and how to get time to spend meaningfully creating something. So yeah, it's a good book. No, I'll definitely look into it. There's another another one where he wrote called uh, Digital Minimalism, which is about eliminating distractions that we've created, some, some of the ones we've created in the last 10 years, and, and basically freeing you up to do more deep work, essentially. That's, that's a big thing for him, you could tell. He was a software engineer based in Bay Area somewhere. Um, obviously, no, wanted I'll, I'll, more focus time. <laughs> I'll, I'll definitely look into all of them, I think. Um, it, it's, it sounds pretty fascinating. It's helped me, you know. It's, uh, it's a, just to, I've, I've had post-it notes with, with uh, quotes from it stuck on my computer screen, just like focus and deep work and just things like that, just to remind me, like, oh, I'm, what am I doing? Am I just, 
Am I just scrolling and some newsfeed for distraction or, you know, do I need to be doing this? It's like, I guess a lot of it comes down to being, being conscious of what you're doing and, and trying to get back to the more meaningful things in your life, whether it's your family or your work or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Cool stuff. Well, yeah. Thanks again, Norman. I really, really appreciate it. And I hope we get to, um, I'm, do more things together and um love to announce things for you as they come out and uh, and highlight the cool stuff that you guys are doing yeah i'm looking forward to being able to share more and um thanks for having me on you bet you bet well, thank you also to our listeners uh we will be back again in a couple of weeks with another episode um but this has been episode 41 with norman wang from glassbox technologies and um we are CG Pro. You can follow us at becomecgpro.com. And we'll see you again in another couple of weeks. Take care. Take care.